The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we get an expert assessment of the current state of the land war across Ukraine. We look at recent packages of support from Ukraine's allies, and we speak to Ukrainian-American Megan Busky on her new book, discovering her grandmother's story from a village in western Ukraine to the mines of a Siberian gulag. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 15th of February, day... 357. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Senior Fellow for Land Warfare at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, Ben Barry, and author and researcher Megan Busky. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, David, it sounds as if it's still very, very violent in the Donbass region. So Russia is reported to be pouring more heavy equipment and troops into Luhansk region. This is the regional governor, Sergei Haide, he said on Wednesday. Uh, and this follows on from President Zelensky saying that Ukrainian forces have repelled Russian assaults in this in the area. So there's a there's still a huge amount of of effort from both sides in that uh, in the Donbass region. We know that Putin is trying to do something to have something to show for the for the year, the campaign, the, th- the massive three-week campaign that's taken a year uh, next Friday. So they're really pushing to try and claim as much of the Donetsk and Luhansk region as they as they can. I mean, this was backed up by, by Ben Wallace. He was saying today that, that Russian troops in the region are suffering what he said was almost First World War levels of attrition. And their success rates have been a matter of metres. Now, he was speaking on uh, Radio 4 this morning on the study programme. But he said what they're doing, what Russia's doing, is trying to advance using human wave. That's his words, human wave. First World War levels of attrition and and success rate of metres rather than kilometres. So we, what is happening there? If this, even if it's coming at a huge loss to Russia, it is concentrating Ukrainian forces and then they are being hit by Russian artillery. So it is extremely violent in the Donbass. There's very small... Um, uh, gains by Russia around the north of Bakhmut. Um, they're still trying. They haven't yet. They haven't yet encircled that town. And further south, around the, the Vuladar region that we spoke of recently, I mean, it's still very, very fluid down there. Russia's losing a huge amount of people. Um, and in terms of tank losses, we think that they've lost around about half of the most modern T-72 tanks that they've got in the field, and about two thirds of the most modern T-80 that they started with last in February 2022. And we think Russia has lost about 2,000, 2,500 Russian, uh, sorry, tanks and Ukraine about 700. So it, it is extremely, extremely brutal. And the it was described to me today that the, the recently reported figure of 130 Russian casualties, sorry, 130,000 Russian casualties 
that's dead, wounded, missing and captured is a is a is a plausible figure, reasonably plausible figure, and that the Ukrainian loss rate is probably not far behind it. So still extremely volatile, extremely violent in the um, uh, across the country, but especially in the Donbass. Thanks, Tom. Ben Barry, thank you so much for joining. Can I just bring you in here? Maybe give us your assessment of the current state of the land war in Ukraine. The US particularly has donated tens of thousands of precision artillery rounds. Now, as far as we can see, the hundreds of thousands of rounds that Russia has fired have not been precise, whereas the guided rocket fired from HIMARS you know, can hit a window at 80 kilometers. And similarly, they've also supplied tens of thousands of Excalibur guided 155 millimeter shells. And they've been using those for deep interdiction of, Rus- of Russian forces. So it's not quite a simple one, one for one. You know, one of those pre- precision artillery munitions can maybe have the same effect as 10 or 20 um, old-fashioned dumb dumb munitions of course the 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 downside is it takes longer to make them and they're also much much more expensive now if you'd like i'll talk about where the battlefield's at and then where it might be going what we've got at the strategic level is largely a stalemate in which very dense front lines across hundreds of kilometers uh see quite a bit of low-level fighting uh, the Russian main effort at the moment seems to be in the Donbass, particularly at Bakhmut and the small towns and villages that sat- that satellite it. Uh, what Russia is doing is sending forward infantry with very limited combined arms support um, in rather First World War waves, and they're being defeated rather like the British attacking waves on the Somme um, were in 1916, so heavy casualties. But what Ukraine's also seen to do sorry, what Russia's seeking to do is to pin Ukrainian forces in place so that they can attack them with artillery and inflict casualties like that. Uh, And I anticipate that over the next few weeks that will continue, although the battlefield may develop as spring comes along. Ben, if I could jump in here, and and welcome, welcome. Great to have you with us. Sorry for the tech problems. Um, I understand you've got a short amount of time, so I'll race through it. When we spoke this morning, you said this this war is characterised by um, it, it's absolutely brought to the fore the importance of the moral component of fighting power. Now, what do you mean by the moral component of fighting power and how has it impacted this war? Well, advancing into enemy fire or across an enemy minefield isn't something that comes naturally to most people. It requires enormous reserves of bravery. It requires a high standard of individual morale. And also to do it successfully, it requires a very high level of teamwork where people uh, cooperate flawlessly and the whole becomes uh, more than some of the some of the parts. Um, throughout the conflict, Ukraine has shown a much higher level of this than the, the, than the Russians. Um, the electrifying leadership of President Zelensky held, helped, but the Ukrainian forces were well seasoned by their six years of conf- of conflict in the Donbass, and they'd learned how to find um, adaptive, effective military leaders from the, bottom, from the bottom up. So the standard of Ukrainian military leadership has been much higher. So early in the war, for example, brave Ukrainian light infantry operating from towns and woods were able to use their anti-tank weapons 
to bring to a halt the ponderous Russian co- Russian columns that blunders around in a rather dinosaur-like fashion. Now, that isn't to say that Russian troops aren't brave. They quite clearly are uh, to keep coming against formid- formidable odds. And the Russians have shown some tactical competence, for example, in their withdrawals. But I'd rate the morale, the moral component of Ukrainian forces as much higher than those of Russia. Thanks. Just that point you, you mentioned there about Russia's military skill at handling their withdrawals. I mean, no army wants to be going backwards, clearly, but the manner of which they, they got out of Kiev and the north of the country, and particularly Herzon, where I think you were quoting 40,000 troops-ish, a couple of divisions worth, got across the river in good order. It shows that, that they are able to go backwards well, which requires great coordination, great discipline. Um, it involves, I mean, it can be fraught with danger if you have a, an army bearing down on you as, as you're trying to withdraw. But does that mean that that Russia is better at those type of opposite operations that are very, uh, um, very scripted, if you like, and everyone has to do what they're told when they're told to do it more than the the initiative that is required in the offensive? And, and does that augur well for Ukraine for the for the fight to come? Uh, Dominic, I, I wouldn't argue with your analysis. You and I both did plenty of withdrawal exercises where we're at Santos in the first half of our careers. And they're very liable to go wrong, particularly when the enemy interferes. Now, the withdrawal from Kiev um, in the late spring, it's not clear whether the Ukrainians followed that up in order to attack it. I mean, they might have chosen not to deliberately to um, allow the Russians to withdraw so the Ukrainians could quickly follow up to the international border. But the Kherson campaign is a very interesting campaign because Russia was both doing deep attacks, particularly with HIMARS, but it was also pressing forward with ground forces against quite considerable Russian defences in terrain that was quite difficult um, for them to attack because it was it was so open. Um, the evidence, I think, is that um, basically about 40,000 Russian troops, a couple of divisions, got away very quickly within a 24-hour period. Uh, whilst they were under interdiction from Ukraine's HIMARS attacking their lines, their lines of communication, I, it may well be that this is a Russian strength. I mean, traditionally, the Russian military were very, very good at planning, and certainly they've kept sort of General Staff Military Academy and all their various staff colleges, at which, at which this is taught. Indeed, the commanders of the two of the Russian formations had an incentive to make sure it got it worked. It worked as well. Um, at the moment, they don't seem to have the competence to be able to do anything other than very simplistic First World War style attacks, um, in which their ability to coordinate the various arms, particularly the artillery with the infantry, seems very limited. I'd commend to the listeners. Um, some excellent articles on the Wavell Room, the semi-official British Army um, site, by Sergio Miller, who's done a lot of detailed analysis of Russian military performance. And his his most recent article on a small Russian attack in the Donbass, and also his article on the withdrawal from Kherson, I think give you an excellent picture. Thank you. Last one for me, because I know you've got to dash off in, in five minutes, if I may. Um, you were suggesting that, that even with the 
Oh, sorry, go back a step. A lot of people have said that this is this war heralds the era of drones. Tanks are done. All the rest of it. You can't hide anywhere on the battlefield. Drones can see everything. They can be everywhere. They can direct artillery fire. Yada yada yada. You, you've suggested that actually there's still and in those two campaigns, the Kharkiv and the, and the Hezon. Uh, operations that you've just mentioned and elsewhere shows that there is still with a bit of thought clearly but still a real there's room for surprise and deception on the battlefield can you just finish on that thought please well i think i think there is um you know it's certainly true that there's a hell of a lot of isr being used by both sides from satellite imagery uh signals intelligence um, right down to hordes of small, cheap commercial drones. ISR being intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. That's correct. Yes, forget, forgive me. Um, but of course, drones can be shot down. I mean, I think there's reliable reporting that the average lifespan, lifespan of a civilian commercial quadcopter above the front line in Ukrainian hands is about a week uh, before it's shot down or crashes or is, broke or is broken. Uh, and of course, fashionable as drones are they can be counted they can be shot down um they can be jammed uh, their sensors can be blinded by lasers and i think what this is telling us is modern combined arms maneuver you want to be able to create a bubble right down at company level that keeps the drones off your off your back and you probably need a variety of different methods methods to do to do this but i think the the two russian withdrawals and particularly the very successful Ukrainian counteroffensive in the autumn that pushed the Russians back from the outskirts of Kharkiv, they show that, that you can achieve surprise. Now, there's a variety of means you can do that, including dispersing your forces, suddenly concentrating them. Also, deception, dummy positions, dummy signals, signals traffic, and uh, maybe some dummy attacks as well. But... It's certainly still possible, I think I think the evidence suggests, that military commanders are going to have to think more about this and they're going to have to play increased attention to what the West calls operational security, but what the Russians call Maskarovka, which is a mixture of operational security and deception and a very useful term. Thanks so much, Ben. Just one more quick question from me, if that's all right. What do you see as the main obstacles for both sides going forward? And uh, and what would you what would you recommend our listeners look out for in the next few months? What will you be looking for in, in, in the conflict in the months to come? Well, probably best if I just give you a quick burst on, on what I see as the shape of the war. Please, that's but, good. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a couple of minutes, but Ukraine has stated plans for counteroffenses to push the Russians out of their country. And for this, they've said they want at least 10 armoured brigades with modern Western armour. And the key thing about the modern Western armour is it's much better protected than obsolete Western armour or indeed uh, Soviet-style armour. So that's why they've requested a 1,000 modern armoured fighting vehicles, 300 tanks and the remainder infantry fighting vehicles. Now, we're monitoring the declarations by Ukraine's allies. And as at this morning, we reckoned that what was declared that could reach Ukraine by the summer was about 25, 25% of this. What does Moscow seek to do? Well, Putin has not changed his objectives of regime change in Ukraine, and he seems to be playing it long in terms of wanting to outlast Ukraine and its allies, and is willing to accept heavy losses in doing so. He's also stated a medium-term objective of achieving full control of the Donbass and of the Zaporizhia and Kherson oblasts. Now, it's not clear to me that as things currently stand, 
uh, the Russian army can concentrate enough capable and competent formations to achieve this. So in the meantime, Russia will continue to fortify its defences and continue also to attempt to pin Ukrainian forces and inflict attrition with these First World War-style artillery and, in, in, and um, infantry attacks. We can also expect intermittent Russian missile and drone attacks on civilian infrastructure. But remember that every single missile and drone that's fired at a civilian heating plant, an electricity plant, or indeed a, a, a railway junction box, is a missile that can't be fired at military targets. Now, for both sides, spring will make attacking easier, and political factors impel both sides to attack. Now, whichever side attacks first will get both politically and military first-mover advantages, but will also expose themselves to counterattack by the defenders' artillery and ammunition. Now, quite clearly, the Russians are busy fortifying their positions to achieve that. Construction of linear defences, um, anti-tank ditches and, and rows of dragons, dragon's teeth. Uh, the Ukrainians also have probably developed defences in depth and both sides may well be holding armoured reserves at the tactical and operational level uh, so that if a successful attack is staged by their enemies, they can then delay it and, and counterattack it. Uh, but provided Ukraine is supplied with sufficient ammunition and modern Western equipment, and this continues, I think the balance of political and battlefield leadership, as well as the Western weapons, will probably give Ukraine tactical advantage. But it's not clear that Kiev has enough combat power to eject Russian forces as quickly as it or its supporters would like. Now, we have to remember this has been a terrible war. Um, you know, I was in the war in Bosnia and that was bad enough, but this is much worse. We can expect another bloody year, I think, with unpredictable action-reaction dynamics as both sides stroll for the initiative at the strategic, operational and tactical uh, levels. So that's as I see it from my humble desktop. Well, thank you very much, Ben Barry, for your expertise and your time. Um, it has been really interesting and fasc fascinating to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Dom, can I come back to you? Are there any more updates from your side before we go to our guest? So today, what are we talking about? It's mainly, it's mainly aid for Ukraine, military aid. The NATO Defence Minister meeting is ongoing in Brussels. Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, has just given a press conference, but there's still all the stuff happening in the sidebars there. Um, and he, the, the big thing from the, the press conference was that Jens Stoltenberg says that NATO is going to um, review its uh, capability targets for munition supplies, talking about having more and holding more. Uh, stuff, air defence and ammunition, uh, artillery ammunition were singled out. But I mean, they're talking lots of different natures of, of ammunition um, generally for Ukraine, but also in general. I mean, th this idea that of, of countries gifting munitions to Ukraine obviously has a has a um, an impact on the national stocks. And so um, NATO is encouraging partner nations to uh, to increase their their holdings of of stocks, and NATO wants to hold more stocks itself. So uh, a lot of that happening today but but what has been announced today as well somewhat confusingly but we'll 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 split the two up it was it was announced in brussels at the nato defense ministers meeting by britain's defense secretary ben wallace but this is not a nato initiative ben wallace announced that ukraine's going to receive um, millions of pounds of capability or millions of dollars worth of capability from the international fund for ukraine so you remember the the ramstein initiative this is us secretary of defense lloyd austin's 
initiative, the 54-nation Ramstein group that uh, gift um, equipment to Ukraine. Well, in parallel with that, you've got a sort of, it was set up by, by, by Ben Wallace and, uh, and the Netherlands, this international fund for Ukraine. Now, this is, this is just cash, basically. This is cash to go out onto the open market to buy stuff or to, uh, to gift to nations to increase their industrial, their own domestic industrial capacity specifically for Ukraine. So that fund, the International Fund for Ukraine, um, an announcement today, uh, 18 nations has, has pledged a couple hundred million uh, dollars worth of, of tank spares, um, drones, electronic warfare, air defence, artillery ammunition, um, so on and so forth. So this, this package has been pledged by the UK, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden and Denmark. That's the first, the first lump. Um, although there is about uh, about six hundred million dollars in the fund at the moment, but this is the first the first big announcement of that. So that is that is going to happen. That is separate to, but but obviously uh, done in concert with uh, done in concert with what's happening at NATO. Um, I think that's that's encouraging. I mean, we've been we've been talking about this for for some time about what's going to happen where. I think the Czech Republic offered to to restart dormant capability, industrial capacity for producing artillery ammunition so that's what this fund is is for um and it comes on the back of so yesterday lloyd austin that's a u.s secretary of defense he has suggested that the the ramstein group his his initiative the 54 grouping uh, member state group is going to continue to support ukraine in the long run he said yesterday that the that the ramstein group or formerly known the uk uh, sorry ukraine defense contact group will, quote, support Ukraine's fight for freedom over the long haul. And he was talking, he was asked in, in context of the the uh, Russian offensive, which I think has started. We can we can have a discussion about that. I think this, the much vaunted offensive is underway. Um, but he was asked about providing help in the here and now for, for, uh, to, for the Russian offensive or to push back against the Russian offensive and to help Ukraine's anticipated spring offensive, and hit, so he answered that, and then he was in in the context of longer term, said that uh, said that the Ramstein Group would 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 like I say fight for freedom over the long haul. Now the International Institute of Strategic Studies, global think tank, brilliant think tank. I was there this morning. They've launched this year's military balance, which is the the who's who of defence capability. If you want to know, as David asked me this morning, how many tanks does Mongolia have? He sneered at Dom. And I gave him the answer. You just have to look it up. It's all in there. So they launched that today. I was there for launch. And I was speaking to Bastian Giergerich, who's the director of defence and military analysis at IISS, about this industrial capacity. And he said that, that most industry sources in Europe, and this is just, just from Europe, but he's suggesting that industry in Europe has a capacity to produce about 300,000 rounds of 155 mil artillery ammunition a year. And it's, it's a reasonable assumption that European capacity could go up this year, so 2023, by about 50%. Okay, now, Ukrainian daily usage of artillery we reckon we think is around the 6000 shell mark a day that's probably a conservative estimate but it but it's ease of math and means i don't have to take my shoes off now that means that the whole annual production of of europe um would would ukraine would burn through it in 50 days and if they ramp it up by the 50 percent figure that that mr gigerich was, was suggesting that's obviously only 75 days now as i said this is europe only we haven't taken the, the US into account here or any any other partner nations, but it just shows the kind of level of ambition that's required to um, to get up to 
to, to get up to the fight. Um, and that's artillery alone. There's, there's a huge amount of, uh, of other stuff um, required. But that's happening as we speak. That's coming out of that's coming out of Brussels right now from the from the NATO defence ministers meeting. And the um, the quote I just gave you there was from the, from this morning's launch of the of the um, uh, military balance from from double I double S. I'll take a little pause there. Thank you very much, Dom. Well, I believe we do have our guest, Megan Buskey, since she's joined and been listening to all, the, all this. Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real, real pleasure to have you here. Would you just like to introduce yourself and your work to our listeners? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Megan Buskey. I'm um, an American writer of Ukrainian descent. I have been traveling and studying Ukraine, traveling in Ukraine and studying the country for about 20 years. I've written about Ukrainian politics, culture, and history for a variety of publications. Um, and next week, my first book is going to be published, which is about my family's experience in Ukraine during and after World War II. Um, another thing to know is that I still have a lot of family in Ukraine um, that I'm close to and um, have um, maintained connection to um, as this terrible war has been unfolding. Well, let's start with um, your book. The starting point for your book is is the fact that your grandmother um, came from Ukraine. Um, can I just ask you before before we talk about her though? Um, how much did your your Ukrainian identity figure in your life growing up, and and if so, how much? Yeah. So it, being Ukrainian was was pretty important to me. Um, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, which actually has a pretty big Ukrainian community. Um, in a largely sort of American environment, American middle class family and um, community. But I, we had this connection of uh, my grandmother, who was lived very close by and took care of me and my brothers on a regular basis. Um, and it was because of her that we had a lot of exposure to Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian traditions. Um, you know, we celebrated Ukrainian holidays, ate copious amounts of Ukrainian food. Um, so for me, it was really, you know, a part of the fabric of my upbringing, very much so. Um, I think another thing that was also just important to me um, as, a, as a child uh, was that I had an awareness that we had a lot of close family in what was then Soviet Ukraine. Um, so, for example, my my mother, we would, my grandmother would periodically send packages to our family in Ukraine, and my mother would, um, you know, gather up the clothes that we were no longer wearing every couple, a couple of times a year, and would include them in the packages that my grandmother sent over. And then, you know, a year or so later, I would just be like, kind of bored at my grandmother's house looking around, and I would see these photographs of, of girls who are like my age, or a little bit younger with kind of blonde hair, and and blue eyes like me, and I, they would be wearing my clothes. Um, so there was this, oh, you know, this so strong awareness that there were these other people that were, that were very close to my family, but that we couldn't really stay in contact with easily, because obviously, during the Soviet, Soviet times, it was very difficult to communicate. And even into the 90s, it was, it was hard to, to, um, you know, it's very expensive to make a phone call, for example. So, um, it was, you know, they, it was there, but it wasn't there too at the same time, which I think was also important to me. You've mentioned her a few times, um, your grandmother. So tell us a little more about her. What, what was she like when you were growing up? How did you see her in, in the family? She, uh, so she was a sort of a figurehead of the family in a lot of respects. She um, was very hardworking. She, you know, when in my early childhood, she was still working at her job as a factory worker in Cleveland. Um, and she was very social. She had a lot of friends. She was really active in the Ukrainian community in Cleveland and 
um, particularly uh, activities centered around the church. Um, so I definitely saw her as like a very strong person who had this, you know, really full life. But there were also things about her that were, I think, a little bit confusing for me, too. I mean, just the foreign element. My mother had also been born and kind of spent her formative years in the Soviet Union, but she um, kind of has assimilated fairly quickly um, when she came over as an adolescent, whereas my grandmother felt like very, you know, kind of of a, of a different place. Um, and not only was she kind of, you know, obviously foreign in these in these ways, but she also had something kind of tragic about her. There was... It was clear that she had experienced something quite, you know, had experienced a lot of hardships earlier in her life. And this would come out in things like, you know, when she, she talked about her early life in Ukraine, she might start to cry or, you know, she was really obsessed with money. And, we, you know, like now I still kind of check the price of strawberries at the grocery store because I just have this like ingrained um, memory from my grandmother always like reporting about like how much the strawberries cost that she would you know bring to us um, every week and she also like baked just like so much food like all the time um, which you know in, in I think in my mind was sort of uh, connected to the fact that she had at, at times in her life struggled to get an adequate amount of, of food for herself and her family so um, you know a very like loving presence but also someone that you know, I think compelled a lot of questions. When did you first decide to find out more about her history and her story? She died in 2013. And I, by that point, was, you know, very close to her. I was fully an adult and she was 88, but it was still a bit of a surprise. And it was a sudden death, unfortunately. Um, and so I think it was really, it was part of the, the sort of research that I had th- threw myself into after she died was an effort to kind of stay close to her, I think, as part of a mourning process. You know, I would, was doing, you know, I, I sort of got obsessed with going through the different photographs that I found in her, her house of her early life in the Soviet Union and just trying to map them out, like who was who and when were the photos taken. Um, but then it extended into like kind of bigger cultural questions about the, the, the time of, uh, you know, the, how she had grown up and the circumstances she'd experienced. And I had done some of that work before she died. I'd interviewed her before and so on. But after she died, it had this, side of, this sort of relational component, but also, and this, it also became important for me to like preserve the story of her life as best I could, because it, um, it was, I think in my family, I was the one that sort of knew, knew the most details. Um, but then it was also a way to start to, I think, get into some of these questions, maybe some of the confusion that I had felt as a child about, you know, just this, this difficult past that she had obviously experienced. What really was that? And, you know, she, we had talked about that sometimes that those sorts of things would come up, but when they did, I was very, I was very, um, it was very important to me to sort of be attentive to like whatever her needs might be in that moment. And just to make sure she was as comfortable as possible and not really push her to, you know, revisit some of the most traumatic aspects of her life but after she died like that you know that component wasn't there anymore and so I I I wanted to kind of go more deeply um into into researching her her life and experience so you went back to Ukraine to find out more about her story and your family's story where did you go Uh, who did you speak to and, and what did you find out about her early life 
my grandmother was from the Lviv area, Lvivska Oblast. Um, and so I spent most of my time, most of my, my research time there. Um, I'd already lived and spent a you know, considerable amount of time in Ukraine before I had um, really started this project in earnest. But um, I would say I spent some time in Lviv, uh, just going through the archives. Um, there were a lot of archives uh, that became much more accessible in the in the 2010s pertaining to family history. So KGB case files, for example. So I was able to to get um, some of that when, and go through that with some archivists, which was was really incredible. But I also spent a lot of time in the place where she grew up, um, which is a village called Staryava. It's on uh, the border with Poland, very close. It's in the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains, extremely, extremely beautiful place. Um, and I think it was even just important for me to spend time in Staryava because it's a place that has, and, and this might be my romanticized version of it, but it's kind of, it's sort of stayed frozen in time in some ways. And I think it's always these sort of rural villages uh, throughout Ukraine, but even, I guess, predominantly in Galicia, which is the area that I know the best, um, you can sort of, you can go there and you, it's very easy to imagine what life was like there 70 years ago, 100 years ago, even 150 years ago, just because of how close people have, still are to the land and to like to agricultural processes. Um, but also to like, it's, it's still a little bit underdeveloped in some ways. Um, but people also like, you know, uh, still do the potato farming and potato harvesting on a regular basis. It's just part of the cultural fabric of life there. So it was important for me just to go back and like absorb that. But also I, I spoke, of course, to a number of people in the village, predominantly family members um, who, you know, knew my grandmother or um, I guess they all knew my grandmother, but um, or were just, you know, older people in the village who could tell me what life was like, um, you know, Prior, prior to World War II and during World War II. Well, let's let's talk about that. I mean, we've we've talked about the the history of Ukraine in the twentieth century quite a lot on this podcast. Um, uh, the Second World War, the Stalinist terror, the Holodomor as well. Um, can you place your gran- your grandmother in these uh, events? And what were her experiences? What did you find out? So she didn't experience the Holodomor because that. Um, only took place in Soviet Ukraine, and this part of Ukraine was under Poland um, prior to World War II. So thankfully, they were exempt from that horrible experience. Um, but during World War II, this region was occupied repeatedly, repeatedly. So it was invaded by the Soviet Union, then taken over by the Nazis, then taken over by the Soviets again. And it had terrible consequences for residents of that region, um, in you know every single possible way that you can imagine on of course the you know most notably i would say for the genocide of the jews but there was widespread killings of other ethnic groups as well um in terms of where my grandmother sort of fits within you know what her life was like during that time so she was born in 1925 she was 14 years old when the war started and she was kind of just old enough to be um really you know, must you know had a, just a, have terrible life experiences because of the war. I think maybe if you were five, ten years younger, you would have been spared a little bit more. But you know, at fourteen, you're kind of an adult by village standards. Um, you're finished with school. You're just largely working. Probably likely going to be married um, within you know a few years, and that was true of my grandmother. And I would say, you know, the biggest consequence uh, for her 
was that her her husband, who she married um, fairly early in the war, uh, was arrested. He was an ethnic Ukrainian, but he was arrested by the Nazis for petty theft. He probably stole a hat or something. And he was sent to Auschwitz, and then he died at Mauthausen. So by the time she was 17, she was both a mother and a widow because they had had a child um, before his arrest. And, you know, it's she actually never really spoke about him. Um, and so it's hard to understand what that time must have been like for her. But I, I go into it in, in depth and his relationship and the book or his their relationship in the book. Um, but that was certainly like the most obvious consequence of the war. But then she was also, you know, as, as I mentioned, there were occupying forces going back and forth and a lot, a lot of blood was shed. And she was um, involved in helping to, I know, transport bodies of, of people who had been killed, um, you know, her, her peers um, to make sure that they were, could be buried by their families um, her brother was a member of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which was kind of like a far-right nationalist movement that was really popular in, in that part of Galicia. And um, so she, like a lot of villagers, also kind of contributed in terms of, you know, keeping watch and sort of, you know, if there was, some, you know, a Soviet person coming, like a Soviet officer coming, they would try to, you know, ferry message to, you know, whoever was hiding that that was happening. Um, and then in terms of Stalinist repressions, that also factored very largely into her story, which was that after the war, um, in an effort to kind of rid the um, Western Ukraine in particular of people who supported Ukrainian independence, the Soviets orchestrated a mass deportation of, of families of people who had fought in OPA. So, in 1947, my grandmother, my, my grandfather, they, my grandmother had remarried by that point. Um, and then her mother and her younger brother were all deported to Siberia for just being family members of, of someone who had fought in um, on behalf of the nationalist movement. This um, Siberian deportation, this exile, um, how long did she spend there? And did, did you have any sense of that growing up? Or did, was it a shock for you to discover this? And what, what did you find out about her life there? She was in Siberia for almost 20 years. I think it was 19 years. Um, and she she spoke actually a lot about Siberia. Um, she worked in coal mines. Um, and sort of that was the only job that was available. It was, I think, especially when they arrived in 1947, an extremely difficult um, experience. Ex it, the conditions were really bad. Um, food was 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 not provided on a regular basis, um, so people had a lot of concerns about just being able to to survive. Um, they endured, you know, this sort of terrible, lengthy deportation of you know spending two weeks in an unfurnished cattle car in order to get there. And um, it was, you know, their their movements were monitored, um, so they couldn't leave the the, the settlement or their barracks that sort of depended on what time period you're talking about. So those early years were really difficult. Um, but after Stalin died, the, the, they began, the Soviets began the process of gradually dismantling the gulag and the exile settlements. And um, they eventually 
had their exile sentence canceled in the early 1960s, which was, um, they, you know, when they were initially deported, they were told that they would never be able to go back to Ukraine. Um, but that was reversed. And um, my grandmother was able to leave for the United States um, later in the 60s. But she always, yeah, she talked a lot about um, about working in the mines. And I remember, you know, she she told me that she learned Russian by studying the newsprint that would be wrapped around the bread that they gave to people that worked in the mines. Um, I remember her telling me about how she, after every shift, they would go to the banya and scrub, scrub the suit off of their bodies. Um, so it was a very, um, it was a very powerful set of experiences she shared. You mentioned that after this time in, in, in the gulags, um, she was able to leave the Soviet Union and come to the United States, um, come to, in the, in the end, um, where you are. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? How did she manage to do that? And what was her experience as a Ukrainian coming to the, coming to the, to the US in the 60s? The critical thing about my grandmother's story was that she, her father was in the United States prior to the outbreak of World War II. So he had come um, from Staryava to, to actually Cleveland in 1929. Um, this was an indication of just how desperate things were in Staryava at that time. He wanted to sort of um, earn some money for his family so that they could buy fields and hopefully build a house. He just intended to come for a year or two, which was pretty common among, you know, kind of Ukrainian farmers from Galicia that they would come to the United States for just a year or two and then go back. But he ended up staying, coming right when the Great Depression started. And so things were much more complicated than he expected. And he ended up staying. Um, and he was still in the United States when World War II broke out. So he had for a while sort of no ability to know what happened to his family um, during the war. And it took him a long, I think, a fairly long time to figure out that they had been eventually deported to Siberia. Um, but that was the, the key connection was that he became very active in the mid fifties and actually found some of the paperwork he submitted in Ukrainian archives, sort of begging Soviet officials to consider granting his family exit visas. Um, it was very difficult to leave the Soviet Union in the 1960s. And to be honest, I'm not really sure how my family did get these exit visas. Um, I think certainly one of the key components was that the people that were allowed to emigrate were women. Um, if you were a man, it's my understanding that you had like virtually no opportunity because the Soviet Union had lost so many men during World War II. Um, but because my grandmother, by the time um, she was sort of looking to emigrate, she had divorced my grandfather. Um, she had two minor girl children. And so she was probably like, I guess not totally barred from, from, from leaving, or, I mean, she was barred. She had to get an exit visa, but you know, in the eyes of an official, she wasn't a man who would, I, I think would have been just not allowed to go. Um, so she somehow through, you know, money that from her father, whatever political strings he could pull, she was able to get the exit visas that allowed her to come to the United States in the, the late sixties. And she came directly to Cleveland um, when she arrived in the late 60s, she had not seen her father since she was four years old. Um, so she was, I think, in her early 40s, 42 maybe. Um, and it's just an incredibly moving thing to think about of what it must have been like for both of them to be reunited 
Um, but he kind of helped set her up, helped find her a job, helped integrate her into the Ukrainian community and, you know, create, um, you know, a, a relatively healthy path towards living comfortably in the United States. Thank you very much for that, Megan. There was sort of two broad reasons I thought we wanted to do this interview. One was to try and tell hear a bit about the story of somebody who lived through some of the events we've been describing. And, you know, usually when we've been talking about these, these with historians and experts and so on, um, it, it, it's from that sort of history book perspective of this is what happens, this is what the sources say. But I think what we wanted to do, why we wanted to talk to you was because your own family was the source and to, to hear the, the, the experiences there. The, the second reason was also we're aware, of course, of the Ukrainian-American community, Ukrainian-Canadian community, lots of people who listen who have Ukrainian ancestry, we know, especially in the United States. So I thought it'd be interesting to hear the the story of somebody from that community as well. And I wanted to ask on that, um, after your research here and after writing this book and looking at the full-scale invasion in 2022, um, have have your opinions and feelings about it changed? How, how has this research changed how you, you, you view the current conflict? I will say that the the research has allowed me to feel the parallels between um, my family's experience earlier in the 20th century with my the experience now, like very keenly. And I think that's that's an element of of the Ukra- Ukrainian experience of this war in general is that it is something that is very familiar because it's already happened in the lives of people who are still living. Or people in the, the you know in the memories that have been passed down, and I, I went to Poland in the spring, and I heard, you know, I spoke to a number of refugees in um, from Ukraine, and I heard over and over again this sort of this feeling of disbelief in the sense of like, I can't believe I'm fleeing just in the way that my grandmother told me that she had to flee um, when she was my age, and just 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 how confusing and weird that is and i think that that's you know that's a part of of this the experience of this war for ukrainians and for ukrainians and the diaspora in terms of my experience i mean i think it some of the parallels have just are just really powerful i mean i remember just as the war was starting last year and just watching kind of with like disbelief and and fear and a sense of helplessness. I was like, this is what my great grandfather must have felt like when he saw the outbreak of World War II happening. Um, you know, when he was here in the United States and he was separated from his family and he couldn't do anything. And he was just so, just like kind of out of my, his mind with, you know, worry and grief. And I had that, I had a, some, like a, a much, it, it stopped being like a story to me and it became my own experience. And I was kind of able to connect with him more, I think because of, because of unfortunately this terrible war. So I think through, I mean, there's a number of other parallels, unfortunately with what's happening on now and what happened um, during world war two or during the 20th century. And I think that that's, you know, that's certainly been because I've, my research has allowed me to, to feel those things more keenly. Well, thank you very much, uh, Megan. Dom, I believe you have one uh, question for Megan. Is that right? Uh, yeah, at least one. Thanks, David. Uh, Megan, hi. Thanks so much for, for joining us today. Um, your book is titled Ukraine is Not Dead Yet, A Family Story of Exile and Return. Why did you include the word yet in the title? And, and who would you say your book is primarily aimed at? 
So the title is taken from the first line of the Ukrainian national anthem. So Ukraine is not dead yet. Is com- comes there's it's sort of translated in English a couple of different ways, but I like that <laughs> that translation. It's sort of the most poetic for me, and I wanted to title the book. I, I use that that title for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, the most obvious read on the title on, has a sort of poignancy that I I didn't expect when it when I chose it, which is that unfortunately Ukraine is right now engaged in a fight for its independence and sovereignty. So that's a very direct read of the title. But when I chose it, I chose it in part because I wanted to reflect um, the way in which Ukraine stayed alive for my grandmother um, in complicated ways, despite leaving the Soviet Union, I think in part in her love for the country, but also the trauma she experienced that uh, there and then also I wanted it to kind of reflect my own experience of going back to Ukraine and um, keeping these these family stories alive, keeping my connection to my Ukrainian family strong. Um, and so I think all of those uh, meanings could be read in the title. In terms of who the book is is geared toward, it's, I think, now has a... A, a lot of utility for people who want to understand Ukraine in a more personal way, um, particularly this sort of arc of history and how, you know, how we kind of got to this point now. I mean, there's a there's a lot of talk about, and Ukrainians are very sensitive about pointing out that, you know, this war did not start a year ago. It started, you know, in 2014 when Russia seized Crimea. And I think that's a very important point. But it's also true that Ukraine has been fighting for its independence and engaged in this sort of existential struggle for a much longer period of time than that. It goes back to Ukrainian independence, which was occurred 31 years ago, and even further back, I think, into the 19th century, which the the book does discuss. So I think it would be, it's, it's a helpful way for people to absorb that in a, you know, in the, through a, the lens of a personal family's experience. Thanks. I did not know that about the, uh, the national anthem. I would have to have to go and have a look. Thank you for that. Just finally. Um, so as you say, the war started 2014 um, with the, 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 in the East and the and Crimea and the little green men and all that kind of stuff. But there, there was a huge effort um, up to that point, and and I think if I remember correctly, you say you lost your grandmother in 2013, so before the little green men a- appeared. But had she spoke? Did she, had she picked up anything at her? And was her antenna twitching? Had she picked up the the disinformation that was happening and the and the the low level subversion that was going on through the country at the time? The effort that Russia had already started to roll out ahead of coming over the border in 2014. And any, any looking back now. Can you see anything that she was suggesting or hinting or talking about at the time that, that suggests that she was she was on to something? No, I don't think so. Um, I think it was really surprising. The invasion in 2014 was shocking, um, perhaps even in some, ex- in some ways more shocking than the 2022 invasion because the unbelievable had already happened and so I think the possibility that it could happen again was just like a little bit more feasible but you know at that point she died in 2013 so there wasn't I think at that point there was 
just sort of discount. She was she was very engaged in Ukrainian politics and and read and kept up kept up on them, on on them extensively. I think her interest was just in sort of the Yanukovych years, um, the corruption and sort of widespread um, dysfunction that he presided over, to put it kindly. But it, no indication of of sensing the possible invasion of Russia. Well, thank you, Dom, for your questions. Megan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Um, can I just ask both of you then for your very final thoughts? We'll go to Dom first. Um, this is just, you know, what what will you be looking at, thinking of over the next few days? What should our listeners pay attention to? So Dom Nichols first, please. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's go back to Brussels. You've got the NATO Defence Minister's meeting at the moment. Alesny Reznikov, Ukraine's Defence Minister. A lot of questions about him recently and whether or not he was going to be sacked, move sideways, have to retire, resign, etc., etc., over um, corruption, alleged corruption throughout Ukrainian Ministry of Defence. He has said that he's he's been asked, he said today at the NATO Defence Minister's meeting that President Zelensky has asked him to remain in his current post. So it looks like Alizny Reznikov is going nowhere. And in terms of what to look out for, I would just suggest we keep an eye on on the um, the announcements out of Brussels today in terms of the equipment and money that's going to be gifted. The two things that are happening, as I said earlier on, you've got the, the NATO defence ministers and you've also got the um, the sort of separate international fund for Ukraine announcements, the the lumps of money. So there should be a lot of a lot of bits and pieces coming out of, of money and equipment and donations and training and all the rest of it. We'll, we'll make sense of it and, and bring it to you over the next few days. But just, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for those those messages and tweets and all the rest of it throughout the rest of the day. Thanks, Tom. And Megan Buskey, as our, as our guest, would you like the very final thoughts? I would say as we're looking, you know, next week towards the anniversary of the invasion, I think the thing that's sort of coming, a a, a growing anxiety for me is what's termed Ukraine fatigue, or kind of disinterest on the part of the general public of understanding um, what's happening in Ukraine, keeping tabs on it. And I think it's, it's important for us to continue to stay as engaged as possible, as informed as possible, as educated as possible, not just about you know, what's happening in in the military, but also what's happening within the culture of this country, which is, you know, enduring so, so, so much suffering. Um, And I think, you know, for me as a writer, that's an important mission for me is to try to, to, to share as much as I can about the, the really deep, rich culture um, and people that are Ukraine, Ukrainians. Um, and so I hope that people continue to just stay attuned to this because it's, you know, it's, it's been on the front pages for a while now and it's, people are getting used to, you know, nationwide missile strikes happening in Ukraine, but it is so fundamentally um, obscene that this war is happening and we need to do as much as we can to stop it. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. 
So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.